Welcome to Twin Peaks Radio, the show where we remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, a real mystery can't be solved, not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me, bigger than everything we know. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black. Today, this episode is bigger than what I know, I guess. It's, there's a convoluted thing going on for me this week as I record this because I am essentially tying together six different podcast recordings. A strange manner. If you're just listening to this one, you won't get all of that context, and that's okay. But in a way, this is also sort of the heart of the week because I'm going to talk about punctum, which is a thing I mentioned last week when I was trying to remember a word when I was talking about Lynch's thing about the eye of the duck, and I wanted to get to punctum today. But what I'm doing, you should know, just in case you want to go find the context or you are already listening to all these things and want to know the order, is this week I recorded a $1 review of Tick Tick Boom for my Patreon which that was tied directly to yesterday's, this is confusing, which was tied to, I was going to say yesterday's, but it's not yesterday. Okay, so I have three Movies by Minutes podcasts that will be starting fairly soon. Movies by Minutes podcast is what it sounds like, is you take a movie, you break it down into one-minute segments, and then each episode of your podcast talks about a minute of the film. I am doing three of them upcoming that tie together Minutia Ex Machina, looking at the film Ex Machina, the Groundhog Day Project, minute by minute, looking at Groundhog Day, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute, looking at Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Those will be running on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every week, starting probably in January. And essentially what I'm doing this week is recording minutes six of each of those. And minute six of Ex Machina tied into that $1 review of Tick, Tick, Boom. Minute 6 of Groundhog Day Project, minute by minute, is tying into this episode of Twin Peaks Radio. And Minute 6 of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind will tie into a trash film review of Home Alone 2. The six together are sort of me reevaluating the way I approach podcasting and the way I think about and deal with other things that I have wanted to do in my life that I didn't manage to make a living out of. I wanted to be a writer. I wrote novels and short stories. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I never really made any because I didn't have the opportunity as like a teenager. I went to a small private school. I grew up in a religious cult environment at the tail end of the Cold War, which was bad timing for that, thinking I wouldn't really have a future. And so I didn't know how to figure out how do you become a filmmaker as a teenager? How do you get a camera? What do you do? And I tried to go into film school when I went to college in the first place, right out of high school. Didn't get into the film school for obvious reasons. I hadn't you know, made any films. And ended up dropping out of school after two years. And only went back many, many years later. Now I have my graduate degree. have become a professor. And it's a whole different thing of what I expected I was going to be. I also, in the meantime, had my Groundhog Day Project blog writing thousands of words, tens of thousands of words about movies, over four years' worth of entries on a daily blog, the first year of which was looking at Groundhog Day, exclusively. I watched it each day for 365 days and wrote about it. And then what got me into podcasting was when 
I was asked to be a guest on Groundhog Minute, which was someone else's Movies by Minute podcast about that film. So I won't be the first one to be covering that film minute by minute, but I will arguably say I'll be the best. And I say that here on Twin Peaks Radio, where maybe some people listening to Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute won't hear it. Ha ha. Anyway, the only thing I really want to talk about with Twin Peaks today is why Josie is the first thing we see. Not the first thing. I mean, as last week I recovered the ducks in the pond and, you know, establishing shots of the location. But once we are now in the location, this is the start of the show. And the first thing we see is that dog lamp, which I talked about last week, and then it pans over to Josie at the mirror. It is worth noting, of course, in the script, Josie is not Josette Packard. She is... What is her name? No, Josie is not... Ooh. There's a weird order to this, because secret history is where we find out more about Josie, because it has her, um, what is this supposed to be? This is part of the jacket on Josie put together by Interpol in Singapore just before she showed up in Twin Peaks. She was Josette Mai Wong, which is noted is not her real name. Among other aliases, Upright Autumn Bird, which is weird. It's an incorrect translation of her... Where did we get her maiden name? Her birth name is in here somewhere. Oh, there it is. Real name is Li Chun Fung, which roughly translates as Upright Autumn Bird, but someone has pointed out on the Twin Peaks fandom wiki that Josie's Chinese maiden name, Li, is a common surname in China, while Chun Fung, often translated as Spring Phoenix, is a common female name. The translation provided in The Secret History of Twin Peaks, Upright Autumn Bird, is somewhat inaccurate as it is derived from Li Chun, a tonally different word that is not normally used as a given name. In addition, Li Chun actually means Upright Spring, whereas Upright Autumn would be Li Qiu. So, they're mistranslating Li means plum, or different tone, Li Chun means you know, it, it's a whole convoluted mess and Interpol got it wrong, or Mark Frost got it wrong. We'll come back to the secret history segment later. Actually, that might be all I need of it for now, because as we're watching this opening shot, we don't know anything about her, so maybe I'll save that for a long time from now. But there is something else you need to know, in case you don't already know it, but if you're listening to the show, you probably know this. Joseph Packard was originally supposed to be Giovanna Pasqualini Packard, a beautiful woman in her 30s. In the script, she is wearing a silk negligee, sits at a vanity table combing her hair, lost in a dreamy state of mind. From outside, she hears Pete's pickup drive off, which isn't quite how the order goes, but that's in the script. She's barely in the pilot script. Similar to the pilot episode, she's only in a few scenes. We see her shut down the factory which goes roughly the same, even though her name was different. We see her at the town meeting, but Dan Stedman, later Harriet Truman, of course, says of her uh, to Cooper when Cooper asks about her, that's Mrs. Packard, Packard Sawmill, where's Mr. Packard? Died in a boating accident last year. Andrew Packard practically built this town, brought her back from Italy four years ago, left her everything. All of the inclusion of her, but what's important is that she was supposed to be played by Isabella Rossellini, who of course was in Blue Velvet, and who was involved with David Lynch at the time. Notably, actually, I'm not sure why she didn't play the part. I don't know when that happened. 
I think I had something on it in my bookmarks and I lost it. But notable thing I found about Isabella Rossellini, though, is that she has a twin sister named Isota. And they have made a thing of always living near each other, which is cool. Here, whether or not Josie has a twin, oof, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? Do I have that bookmarked? Where is Joan Chen's letter? When the return was coming, Joan Chen wrote a letter to David Lynch. Oh, this is interesting. Coming into who Josie's sister is, in an early draft of Fire Walk With Me, I guess it would be, Jeffries says, not going to talk about Judy. Well, now, I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. But I ain't got a whole lot to go on. But I will tell you one little bitty thing. Judy is positive about this. Her sister's there, too, at least part of her. This is the letter that Joan Chen wrote to David Lynch, writing as Josie. Dear David, I write to you from the wooden drawer knob in which I have been trapped for the past two decades, yearning restlessly for an escape. I hear voices whispering the rumor of a return to my body, and I implore you, O Creator, to let me come back. It seems that the possibilities of who I shall become are as infinite as your fecund imagination. From my oubliette within the chest of drawers, I can sometimes see bodies fumbling, sweating and convulsing with lust, and I long for my physical form, once strong in life, now old and shriveled, or perhaps plump and fertile with age like a rose hip to a rose. Oftentimes I think of Judy, my twin sister. I imagine her wandering drunkenly into the room, holding the drawers which imprison me, incinerating suddenly due to the sheer volume and flammability of the alcohol in her veins. In my mind's eye, I see her burning. I admire the bright color of the flames spreading to the drawers, the air breathing back the energy that was once her spirit. We can inhabit one body together just as we had done as mere cells in our mother's womb. Once again, our two souls could crowd one vessel, forcing us to struggle for dominance, for space, for existence. Josie, I see your face. In this time, finally, it could be mine. Or could it? as my being invades Judy's body like a parasite. Would the physical universe overwhelm me? Would the exhale of a housefly compound into dissonant chords, lunging anguished and unrestrained at my eardrums? Would each microbe terrify me, leave me with nowhere to hide, nowhere to run from the insolent bubbling of nature in its purest form? Like petri dishes pungent with life, proliferating perpetually, bursting with unbridled being. Or would all the living things on earth pale in comparison to the countless lost souls caught between worlds, their cries trilling chromatically, enchantingly, in ways that are neither human nor holy? Do you hear me now as a rustling in the curtains, a murmur in a crowd, an echo without an origin? My time in purgatory has been served, don't you think? Isn't it time I at least got to meet my maker one last time? Yours, Josie. So, this is a soap opera. It is bigger than the mystery of Laura Palmer's murder. And this introduction is not about that. Not every character is going to be connected to it, but this is essentially the first in a line of red herrings for those who obsess. And that is what makes it important. It's not that Josie is going to become so important later. She will become quite central to stuff as we go in the second season, as things get stranger and weird, and funny, 
and odd. But think about the, I was going to say, the fans. I like to exclude myself from that label. Think about the fans of the show, the obsessive ones that are in multiple Facebook groups and talk on Reddit and go to Twin Peaks events, meetups, signings. The ones that obsess about the mystery on YouTube or in podcasts. The people who write entries like this one on Reddit. The significance of Josie being the first person we see, posted by Jake13122 two months ago. Why do we wonder about little things? Why do we wonder about 119? 119! 119! 119! Why do we wonder about Josie being the first thing? Was Josie supposed to be directly responsible for Laura's death? No. I don't think so. She's included first because she is mysterious. What have we established with the opening titles? 119! The opening titles run before this opening scene. And we have established a rural space that if we have seen any of the promo material we know is in Washington. We know it is a small town, despite that number on that billboard. And yet the first person we see, whether she be the scripted Italian or the cast Chinese, is not the first person you're going to expect in this rural town in Washington. So the first visual we have here then is its own mystery. That's that eye of the duck. You know, not every scene's going to be the eye of the duck. That's not how David Lynch uses it. But that is sort of how Twin Peaks fans operate. Every scene is a potential eye of the duck. It's as if, en masse, Twin Peaks fans have decided there is no eye of the duck. Since it has not been identified by David, they want to find it. And they find it wherever they can, whenever they can. Any scene that comes up post a photo from a single episode and the discussion will go on for post after post after post about different interpretations of meaning and every bit of content. So was Josie supposed to connect to Judy? And was Judy supposed to connect to Sarah from the beginning? I don't think so. Can we retroactively connect all these things? Certainly. Which, that fits with a discussion I saw also on Reddit about what the Eye of the Duck means. From Lynch. People were talking about why certain scenes might be it. And someone, Trail of Tacos, six years ago, says, I'm no Lynch expert, but I had the Eye of the Duck described to me by a rabid Lynch fan as follows. The Eye of the Duck is a scene, often flashy or surreal, which is not essential to the general action or plot of the film, but which reveals a key theme or element of the film more succinctly than the actual plot. A real duck eye is odd. It's beady and completely different in texture and color from the rest of the bird. But if the eye wasn't on the duck, or in the exact same location that it's on the duck, the duck would look strange to us, nonsensical, incomplete. I gotta interrupt say that's misleading, because the duck evolved to have the eye in that place. If it evolved to have it somewhere else, we would expect it to be somewhere else. But continuing, in the same way, if the eye of the duck scene were left out of its respective movie, we would still understand the general shape of the movie, so to speak. The plot would remain unchanged, and the bare-bones story would still be communicated. Lost, however, would be a central theme, element, or focus that is brought about by the careful appearance and placing the eye of the duck scene. And of course, as I said last week, David Lynch says that the eye of the duck scene in Blue Velvet is the in-dreams scene, which does not really speak to the plot. 
but it speaks to the strangeness. It speaks to the themes. It speaks to the, our ability to look beyond the normalcy and see something else. And for Twin Peaks fans, ooh, this is everything in Twin Peaks. But also you could say it's Josie's end. Her appearance in The Return was cut, and so she becomes part of a wooden knob, and maybe she's the noise they hear later. Or maybe she's just that knob and she's lost, and we wonder why did the Lodge care about her? And we never find out. And never finding that out, that's a big part of that soap opera plot. And I still haven't gotten to punctum. This is from Freeze, issue 17, November 2014, an article by Noemi Smolek. When his mother died, French cultural theorist Roland Barthes found consolation in the picture of her as a child, then taking the picture as his starting point in writing an essay about photography. Barthes described the photograph as the living image of a dead thing. This was something that it shared in common with the painting which had originated, as documented by ancient Egyptian funerary objects, in portraits of the dead. But what was unique to the photograph, according to Barthes, was its punctum, which he defined as the sensory, intensely subjective effect of a photograph on the viewer. The punctum of a photograph is that accident which pricks me, but also bruises me, is poignant to me. Barthes contrasted the punctum with the studium, denoting a general approach to a photograph that is conditioned by historical and cultural experiences and is not categorically different from how other art forms are approached. Several generations of writers have since reflected on and speculated about the significance of the punctum for photography's theoretical interpretations without arriving at any consensus. Now, this is from the Museum of Education's entry on Roland Barthes, Studium and Punctum, dated March 12, 2013. Bart's camera Lucida, first published in 1980, assumes that the automaticity of the camera distinguishes photography from traditional media and has significant implications for how we experience photographs. To address the apparently uncoded level of photographs which troubles the semiological approach Bart's himself adopted in the early 1960s, camera Lucida advances a theory of photographic meaning that makes a distinction between the studium and the punctum and highlights the punctum as photography-specific. The studium indicates historical, social, or cultural meanings extracted via semiotic analysis, which is, you know, what we're all doing when we pull out meaning from these images and these scenes. For example, the photograph taken by Kane Wessing in 1979, portraying a war-torn street in Nicaragua with three armed soldiers patrolling a street, two nuns crossing the section of street behind the soldiers, could be interpreted as a presence of the traditional oppositions between war and religion, violence, and spirituality. The punctum points to those features of a photograph that seem to produce or convey a meaning without invoking any recognizable symbolic system. This kind of meaning is unique to the response of the individual viewer of the image. The punctum punctuates the studium and, as a result, pierces its viewer. To allow the punctum effect, the viewer must repudiate all knowledge. Barts insists that the punctum is not simply the sum of desires projected into the photograph. Instead, it arises from details that are unintended or uncontrolled by the photographer. Photography can be distinguished from painting or drawing in that its apparatus visualizes the world automatically, rather than being wholly informed by the interventions of the photographer. The theory of the punctum speaks the indexical nature of the photographic medium. It also accounts for the importance of emotion and subjectivity in interacting with photographs. In my blog, 29th November 2015, an entry entitled You Are Better Than This, I said for Bartz, a photograph could be understood in terms of the studium, 
the range of meanings that come from, say, society, that can be read in a particular image, and punctum, the singular part of the image that draws you in. So, is the punctum the opening scene just because it's opening and it's what draws you in? No. The punctum is any of these pieces that get a feeling from you in the moment. And it's your feeling. It's your interpretation. Or mine. The studium is bigger and you might be able to write objective papers about it. But the punctum is subjective. I would also note before I go that the lacrimal punctum is an anatomical thing. It is that point in your eye where the lacrimal glands come out and tears come out. So there's a punctum in your eye, a punctum in a duck's eye, I suppose. The ducks cry? I think they do. They're mammals. Mammals cry. Or they tear up, at least. They don't all do it from sadness. And so, we're here with Josie. I will speed up this content as going forward. I may deal with whole scenes. Whole episodes, even. Who knows? But I wanted to come into this very slowly. To figure out this show to figure out my approach to this show, because I don't like the fans that attack bits of the show and obsess and interpret. It's fine when people interpret things differently. There's some people present their interpretations as if they are fact, and I don't want to do that. My interpretations are my interpretations. This show is my show. Although if you want to be a guest on it, contact me. Find Robert E.G. Black on any social media or follow any of the social media I'm about to list in the outro. But at this point in the show, what do we have? A rural location and this mysterious Asian woman doing her makeup next to a lamp with a couple dogs, which seems fancy, even if we don't know what that lamp is. And she seems fancy, even though we don't yet know who she is, and we're probably intrigued. Remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com, follow the show on Twitter at Peaks Radio, and on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok at Twin Peaks Radio, or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows and get every episode of this one at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. The owls may not be what they seem, but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness.